think so. You've been there, yeah. It's been a while, man. How long has Doug Lane been going on? Quite like you've, you're like an original podcaster, right? Uh, Early adopter of the format. Well, I didn't think so at the time. I thought I was getting on board late. But <laughs> when I started, though, I was one of the first like Marxist or left wing, real left wing podcasts out there. I, I that wasn't associated with some sectarian group. It was Chapo that created a, an explosion of this kind of stuff. Didn't you have something before Chapo? Yeah, since 2009. So right, right. Um, I, I, I started a podcast called Diet Soap, mm-hmm. which was the name of a zine I did in the early 90s, which I, I don't know what it means exactly. And then uh, around 2014, uh, I applied for the publishing manager job at Zero Books when the original gang left and got them to take on the podcast as part of what I did and changed the name to Zero Squared, which really doesn't make any sense either. And uh, yeah, it's been doing it, but, but pretty much the same podcast since then. And then it was right before, it was like 2015, that I started doing YouTube videos as well and putting the podcast up on YouTube. Uh, but it's only been maybe three and a half, four years that the YouTube channel has been a major focus. So we're recording if, if you just want to jump into the episode, Sean. Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's uh, let's keep rocking. You want me to start the thing? Sure. I mean, I, that that could have been a good opening. Um, yes. Or, or we can... If I didn't you know, sound so goddamn morose about my time doing diet, you know, <laughs> doing podcast. <laughs> yeah, well... We can take it again where you, like, you know, really puff it up. Like, it <laughs> like Chapo got the idea from you. Chapo did no. I don't know about that. I don't think you heard of me. <laughs> but you know, I did have uh, Amber uh, Ollie Frost on Diet Soap before she started working with the Chapo guys, I believe. Yeah, she was she was um, a rising star when I first had her on uh, the podcast to talk about. Uh, well, you know, it was the usual anti woke stuff and some some whatever the ambulance chasing thing to talk about was at the moment. You know, sure. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm getting fairly sick of those kinds of stories. I mean, I've been sick of them mm. for a while, like the Mark Crispin Miller, uh, story. Um, yeah, I saw your episode on that with, uh, with Derek yeah. from the other day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my feeling about it is like, okay, yeah, we have to protect this guy's speech rights and no, he shouldn't be fired, but my God, his ideas are pretty boring and, and just way off and uh, not helpful. Um, so I mean, I, well, I mean, it's I mean, it's good to look into propaganda and to think about how things, are, you know, different institutions are influencing the media and such. But it's not the end all be all of left wing politics. But there already was an anti PC NYU professor. Yes, right, Michael yeah. Reckonwald. Yeah, yeah um, uh, erstwhile um, friend in in my uh, adjacent social milieu of the Lauren Goldner insurgent notes left com universe right i mean i don't think it's quite fair maybe it is but i mark crispin miller seems to be caught up in a very different moment it's not really about wokeness or or social justice issues it's it's a little different but uh, I, regardless it's the ambulance has left the station it's no that's for, not, well, yeah 
I I appreciated. Uh, I I did listen to uh, the Pod Damn America episode from last week that Douglas was on, and uh, I have to say I, was, I felt a little self conscious and embarrassed to be name checked so many times in that oh, episode. Oh yeah, I forgot. They but uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I was very flattered that um, all three of you, Anders, Jake, and Doug. Um, realized that I have the correct position on woke anti woke, and so, and basically said I'm the only right person about that. So feeling pretty good. And thanks, Doug, for that. Appreciate it. Yeah, I don't recall saying that, but I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh, it was something that Derek Varn said it on your uh, show the other day on Pop the Left, right? In, in slightly different words, but it's just that the entire woke versus anti woke dichotomy is very much mutually constituent. Right. You know, they, they both arise. They're both part like these, 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 these seemingly diametrically opposed things, but they're all coming from the same place. And yep. ultimately, you know, and, and, and we have to address, I think, at some point on this podcast episode, the elephant in the room, which is that uh, I am Gen X adjacent and you are a Gen Xer. <laughs> and so this is a perfect opportunity to point out that the exact same debates not maybe some different verbiage. The term woke is only like four or five years old or whatever at this point. But the same fucking debate goes all the way back to the 1980s. You could read in like uh, National Review, in the Wall Street Journal about the dangers of PC politics. And of course, as we know, in the 90s, they even did a movie called PCU, which I haven't watched it since then. But if you look at it, it's making fun of the exact same stuff in exactly the same way from the same sort of disposition as we have now. So it's not just that this current iteration of the debate is boring. It's that this isn't even anything new, like generationally, it's been going back 40 years. It's wild. Right. I agree. I do agree completely with you. I won't, I just want to point out that if that's your, your position, it's been my position since, you know, before you were born or something, like <laughs> because um, uh, we've been, you know, since Angela Nagel's book, uh, Kill All Normies came out, the kinds of videos that I produced to promote that always made this point that the woke anti woke uh, or the woke shit lord kind of dichotomy were two two sides of the same coin that we were not addressing the underlying issues the things that were driving a cultural breakdown and it was you know interpreted uh, it's strangely over the years that that position has been interpreted either to be uh, kind of a shit lord position an anti woke position or uh, completely caving to the uh, you know blue-haired <laughs> feminist uh, feminazis or whatever. Sure. Um, and depending on who who watches the video, I have uh, a men's rights activist who has dedicated a number of videos to me, saying that I am uh, completely brainwashed by feminism and um, won't stand up for men and uh, like all Marxists hate men. And I just sure. Think, Please keep making this stuff because it only helps me because otherwise everyone thinks I'm an asshole. <laughs> you can point to him and say, look, if look. he thinks this, I've got to be all right. <laughs> well, I, I would definitely disagree that that woke and anti-woke are two sides of the same coin. But maybe we can get into that a little bit later because we want to talk about uh, your YouTube channel and what happened to it. Um, and early uh, brief, earlier on, you mentioned that. You were uh, you started started this new media stuff um, as like one of the only I think you said non sectarian, uh, right? Uh, so like, uh, but it's funny because I kind of see what's part of what's good about your channel is not that you know you'll have anybody on, um, but I, I feel like you yourself are kind of 
sectarian or at least are trying to represent some of your uh, sectarian past in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was very late to become a sectarian. I was like a liberal anarchist for most of my adult life, you know, like the kind of person. You and me both, buddy. I would read ad busters and thought Noam Chomsky was uh, the the beginning and the end of, of American left thought. And, um, and it's only since around, I mean, it's been a while now, but it's since the economic crisis of 2008 that I even started to investigate Marxism in any serious way. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so, so like when I, when I talk about like the labor theory value and what Marx said, it's always partly like a self-education project now still, um, as well as trying to push what I think the, our foundational concepts of, of Marx on the channel. Um, so I'm sectarian, but I'm not fully formed. I mean, I, I still am trying to, like, I wouldn't say I align with uh, Trotskyism or, or uh, even Marxist humanism anymore, which I was for a little while uh, thinking myself as a Marxist humanist. Um, I, but I do think that uh, some sort of return to the core concepts of Marx is developed in capital and then uh, uh, as well as a re-examination of the political project of Marxism is in order. But I also feel like the American left and maybe even the world left at the moment is very far away from being able to embrace that project as anything other than a you know, thought experiment. It's not, um, it, it's not a living political tradition uh, anywhere at the moment and, and that's uh, disheartening. Well, I, I think that uh, it's going to sound like I'm fluffing you this whole episode because I, I agree with you on a lot of stuff. Um, but like, yeah, it's 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 very important to be humble and have humility uh, about how the world works and what we could do about it. And I find the triumphalism and the sectarianism that you see so so often on the Marxist left to be a huge detriment. This this dogmatism. And uh, we need more voices like that out there. So cheers to that. No, oh, thanks. As my alarm just went off from my phone because I woke up from a nap. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you said you were a Marxist humanist, which is the the Kleiman group, uh, Andrew Kleiman. Right. I also thought that you might that you were involved slightly or partially or at some time with the Platypus Affiliated Society, which I would add that's Chris Cutrone's group. Right. I would add that in 2008, 2009, they were considered a bit of a joke for saying the left is dead, long live the left. <laughs> but um, now, you know, the, it, it, looking back on it, I will say that I know several very smart and good Marxists, very humble thinkers who are uh, kind of innovative but take the canon seriously, who came out of Platypus and are now like some of the more interesting people you see out there. So what was the deal with your, your platypus affiliation in that society? Well, the truth is I only am associated with platypus through my association with Derek Varn, at least originally, because I was never a member. Um, They didn't want me back in the (laughs) early days of the podcast. They were kind of skeptical about uh, wanting a guy who was not in college to, and was not a professor (laughs) um, to join up. Is that a joke? Um, Were they really skeptical? I think that, well, no, I mean, like it wasn't, I was never invited or anything. And I, I, I remember asking Varden, can I get uh, involved? And he said, well, I think they're looking for students, grad students with a a good, good academic career ahead of them. And not so. Know your demographic, right? (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) 
Uh, but that was not what they said to me directly. That was Varn's estimation as he was leaving the group. So, you know, it's not exactly fair. Um, but I would say that um, of the two groups, the Marxist Humanist Initiative and the Platypus Affiliated Society, um, you can't really grab either one of them and say, okay, these are the guys to be aligned with because they have such very different uh, focuses. I mean, for Kleiman, he's an economist. He really focuses on the labor theory of value and defending um, Marx as an economic and political theorist. Um, and for Catrone, he's much more interested in the history of the left and understanding the, the historical struggles of socialism. Um but without really attaching to the economic core of Marx's ideas. In fact, he would be pretty skeptical of the kind of economism that uh, Kleiman seems to represent. Um, uh, and, I've, and I've had him on lots of times and sort of discussed the differences in our outlook because of my influence by uh, the Marxist Humanist Initiative. Um, the other thing that, to point out about the two groups is that they took completely different stances towards the Trump administration – Mm, right, uh, diametrically opposed, and uh, it, it, I would say of the two, the Crone position was the one that was the most nauseating for the majority of the left because he wrote things like, uh, "Why not Trump? Why, why not Trump?" and then "Why not Trump again?" Um, and you know, if you catch him on the wrong day on Facebook, he's kind of repeating Trumpist uh, talking points, talking about uh, how Trump is a mastermind of making the deal, <laughs> shit like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, whereas, you know, Andrew Kleiman, I mean, I was a, I was thrown out of the Marxist Humanist Initiative because I was soft on Trump, um, because I was right. inadequately uh, – uh, uh, I was disinclined to focus on Trump the way the organization started to, mm. and I wanted us to – try to put everything in back into the context of the economic crisis of 2008 and the working out of, of uh, econ economic crisis and how it transformed into political crisis and to try to look seriously at what fascism would mean today and be open to different interpretations. Whereas uh, the Marxist, human uh, Marxist humanist initiative was just like, we have to support, the center of the democratic party, because this is a fascist threat. We have to put, mm -hmm. um, we have to do a united front. Actually to clarify, and maybe I'm betraying some of my nineties ad busters, um, radical liberal anarchist, uh, background here. But I thought I, what I thought was interesting is the people that left those groups, those two groups, uh, were doing interesting work. And I'm thinking about Derek. I'm thinking about Ross Wolf. I'm thinking about yourself. Uh, maybe because I'm like, I'm such, I'm such an anti sectarian. And I think that, like it's like Johnson Forrest tendency, like the things that came out of Trotskyism in the 1940s and 50s to me were way more interesting than like organized Trotskyism. I still feel that way about groups uh, on the left today. I feel like people take these heterodoxies and they and they go in really interesting places with it. Yeah, I think that I'm like I'm aligned myself with the Johnson Forrest tendency, which talks about the Soviet Union as state capitalism. And I really admire that moment but what's kind of sad to watch is each one of them in different ways although maybe riot doing sky less than the other two which was grace lee boggs and uh cornelius castriatus um went off in what i consider to be like anti-marxist directions um some of them explicitly uh, cornelius castriatus right uh actually sort of denounced marx or at least rejected marxism 
Um, and like with Grace Lee Boggs, uh, less obviously maybe, but she became sort of a celebrity of, of just radical liberal leftism, uh, in my estimation, although I haven't, you know, tracked down everything she did. Um, but it, it, it's, if you were like a Marxist Leninist and you looked at the trajectory of the Johnson Forest tendency, you would have to say, see, <laughs> the mass party. Yeah. And this is sort of uh, what you're getting, what you got into in your, your video called Christopher Lash, Paul Sweezy and the great reset, or was that the name right. of the video? Um, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the names. It, it went up a couple of different times under different titles, but got taken down uh, both times it was put up. Uh, it's now up on Vimeo. Um, but yeah, that was the, the idea of that video was to explore how it is that like the progressive left um, is rightly interpreted by even reactionaries as aligned with the interests of capital. Um, and, but it, it, but not to embrace all of the reactionary uh, ideology, but just to say, look, you, you can look at some of the critiques of Christopher Lash and see that the way in which we align ourselves with forces that are ultimately just the financial sector working itself out um, is a, is a problem for the American left and has been for, you know, uh, probably at least the middle of the 20th century and maybe a little longer. Um, So that was the idea of that video was to really, I wanted to explore the ideas of Christopher Lash and I just used the great reset and this contemporary problem as a clickbait tactic Uh because, you know, um, but boy, was I making a mistake doing that. I mean, I think the, it's clear that the YouTube algorithm rhythm just doesn't want an honest and frank discussion <laughs> of the limits of leftism in the United States. That's why they uh, gave you that strike there. No, I think it. Yeah. OK. I think what happened was I, I ran a big, long Alex Jones clip in it. Yeah. And then at the end of it said, we should look for the you know, kernel of of reason in Alex Jones ra- ranting. It's true that COVID is a weapon. Mm. And then. And then went on and said, <laughs> as is everything else in capitalist society, it's a weapon in the class war. And then gave a nuanced 15-minute, you know, explanation of what I meant. But that 15-minute explanation was not interpreted by the algorithm, but me saying COVID is a weapon, you know, that that, that set off the, the trigger. Of course. Yeah, you know, regardless of what I actually meant by that. And I think, too, the interesting thing is that you got through the bots and then you ended up actually chatting with a with a real person, allegedly. And even yeah. then you couldn't um, find any satisfaction. You couldn't, like, reasonably explain to a human being why what you were saying was, like, tinged with a bit of uh, dramatic irony and that you were actually arguing something deeper than that. Even a human couldn't couldn't see that. Well, it's not exactly – it's like it's it's interesting because I talked to a human – I, I suppose through a chat with YouTube, but that human that I talked to was not someone who had any power to decide whether or not the video was taken down or put back up. Um, I've worked like I used to work at Comcast a decade or so ago. And uh, you know, there are policies in place there are places where decisions are made. And then there's the front line of taking calls. And those two things are completely separate and all i can do is try to convince the uh, person calling in with complaint to accept what's already been decided by comcast and i can put a human face on it and i can be sympathetic but i can't change anything and that was basically what i was dealing with with when i talked to a youtube representative was someone who had no power but was given the task of 
presenting a human face, uh, at least somewhat to, to the public. Oh, I've such a, such a very opaque process. Very, very, uh, I don't know, very disheartening. It sounds like. Well, yeah. And, but it's like, technically you, I mean, just on the level of practicality, you can see why it's the case when you look at the number of videos and hours that go up every minute onto YouTube, it, it would be impossible for human beings to actually evaluate all that material. I think there's, it's possible that you could get something set up for channels that uh, are monetized um, and have enough human beings to uh, sort of uh, edit or curate that content a bit more, but I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the, the numbers of how many are really monetized and how many are, are, you know, what the threshold would be. But I certainly feel like our channel deserved that. <laughs> and um, a lot of other channels do too. All right, oh, great. great. Do, cool. do you guys, Andy, do you want to go um, on to, to Lash again or some of the other themes from the video? Something I was kind of surprised to see was that is your comparison between Lash and the Johnson Forest tendency uh, because I had never read Lash before. I wasn't really familiar with him. I had just seen these kind of anti-left people posting him online, and I thought he was some kind of intellectual conservative figure. So I had my the, the best education on him that I've had from this video where you uh, connect him to the, the Monopoly school, and you, you say that he, he came to a lot of the, the right conclusions but then didn't quite go far enough. Do you want to summarize like who Lash was and maybe why he's become popular again today sure i mean the the background for lash is he's coming up in a, uh an american left and and trying to become part of a socialist tradition which at that moment had fully embraced um what i think of uh as like the sweezy monopoly capital school of thought around how to understand the dynamics of capitalism um it would it, i think that was so thoroughly embraced that it was mostly unquestioned and you'd have to be some sort of wild sectarian to to um argue against that uh, and what, this was the idea that capitalism had become so centralized that essentially we have to take over the capitalist institutions or or make it, it was a it was a stagist argument that the era of competitive capitalism of like small capitals competing in the way described in capital is over and we've moved into a new stage of monopoly capital where like the the bulwarks have gone up and the and the and the type of struggle that needs to happen against it changes right right and and uh, you know there are lots of variations on on the idea um but the main thing is that the way I think of it is that we can no longer rely on the contradictions of capitalism mm. within capitalism them, itself to spur proletariat um, re resistance and revolutionary struggle, and that instead the, the those contradictions are being managed by nation states and can be overcome through policy and and uh, by the centralization of financial capital and 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 so on and it. It becomes complicated because to some degree, empirically, that's true. Like the, you have these economic crises that don't develop proletariat struggle that, that's revolutionary. Um, but on the other hand, if you think that the contradictions within, within capitalism can truly be managed, I would say like the many different economic crises system-wide that we've had, including the most recent one, which I think is, uh, we could call it the COVID crisis, but it's really also an economic crisis. Yeah. Um would would uh, expose that the, the idea that capitalism has worked out its own problems uh, is completely erroneous. Um, 
but the other important thing to realize is that the people who thought capitalism was now without contradictions and was beyond the competitive stage and wasn't going to drive the proletariat to a socialist revolution were still socialists and they still wanted to overcome capitalism. They found other grounds to, to, for their, for their socialism. And it had to do with the way that uh, capitalism, even when fully functional, dehumanizes people and, and limits uh, uh, the potential of humanity overall. And, uh, and creates uh, misery and bloodshed and and even threatens the existence of humanity through the development of nuclear weapons and environmental crises. Like, um, uh, it's not an embrace of capitalism as the best of all possible worlds. It's just an embrace of uh, the state as a power that can truly manage the more e economic contradictions within capitalism. Um, and and so that was the background that that Lash was I think working within. I mean that's where where he was coming. He wasn't that focused on the economic issues, and when he did talk about them, he would point to someone like Sweezy, at least in his early book, um, the Agony of the American Left. And uh, what he was focused on more were the cultural effects of this mode of production, this way of life, um, and the way in which both conservatives and liberals. Uh, misinterpreted those cultural effects and and came to erroneous sort of policy positions and and movement positions. I mean, like the culture of narcissism is an indictment of the new left, mm -hmm. as much as it is anything else. But it and also of the liter literati of that time. Um, but and I think as that as far as that goes, it's really pretty good. Um, it's certainly worth reading. Um, and overall. I've become like a fan of Christopher Lash because I find him to be uh, a man of integrity, you know, like uh, he's, he's always acting in, in good faith. He's not seemingly an opportunist. Um, but I, it also has to be said that his work over the span of his career became more and more conservative, not in so much as he embraced the Republican party or he uh wanted to be a conservative but just that he became so concerned about communitarian values and uh trying to uh fight against the atomization that he saw per as pervasive in america at, at you know in the late 20th century and so the people who are uh part of this revival of christopher lash uh they most of them are younger it seems like a millennial thing are um, trying to tap in this to this diagnosis he had uh, from the 60s and 70s and try to make analogies to today in critiquing progressivism or the left. So he's back because people find him compelling, right? Right. And I think this, he is compelling. Um, but, you know, he's compelling in pointing to the cultural effects of capitalism. But uh, as a Marxist materialist, I would still say, but you have to develop a revolutionary movement to overcome the dynamic of capital to address these things. You can't simply uh, ask uh, young people to be more concerned about community values and to put their individual interests aside or to be less narcissistic or uh, to be less woke. None of, the, none of that stuff is going to go anywhere except in to recreating the kind of uh, pattern of conflict that is really creating a stasis uh, on on in American politics. That's why we have Biden is because this is right. how things are fought, uh, you know.
Now we're in this um, this incredible impasse right now, and uh, not just uh, the American left, but um, American politics in general. And I'm thinking about doing uh, a history as a weapon. This thing I do with Matt Chrisman about um, the results of these sort of impasses where, and I'm thinking specifically of the fall of the ancient regime of the French Revolution, where the the politics of a place and time are completely inadequate to carve a way forward and overcome the particular contradictions. Like at least in the 1970s, there was neoliberalism waiting in the wings in order to like reformulate the, the class relation and like bring, uh, the rate of profit back for a little while now it's like we don't even have that so these sort of pessimistic reads like lash and like others i think are they are like there's an imminent reason for why those are popular on the left because it's a very very dark uh and 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 pessimistic time right now for good reason yeah i i agree i i um I wonder if we might have something like a neo-Keynesianism or, or MMT, uh, you know, in our back pocket, ready to become the dominant um, kind of mode of capitalist managerial policies. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's one thing to have it in uh, your back pocket, but it's another thing to have it work. Because neoliberalism worked in this sort of vulture, vulture financialized fashion in order to like rationalize and regulate and destroy tons of productive investment, tons of capital to liquidate it. Um, I'm with Paul Maddock Jr. on this, who's been saying for years, and it took me a while to figure out that he's right, that social democracy sounds great, but there just isn't any money. There's no money there. The rate of profit is insufficient in order to pull some kind of chicanery. And I think Charlie Kirk said that actually. Yeah. From a revolutionary uh, <laughs> Republican uh, position, I hope. <laughs> well, you know, like I, I think neoliberal, neoliberalism worked, you know, when you take a bird's eye view or something. But at the time, you know, neoliberal, the time, the era of neoliberalism was the era of the, the, um, LA riots. It was the era of the of Desert Storm. It was the era of of uh, Iran Contra. It was the era of of you know the Clinton impeachment. It was the era of also a continuing array of political problems and crises. Oh, and the end of the welfare state and the you know and yeah. mass incarceration. And I mean it 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 it's not worked. to. It's, it's not to say that the contradictions didn't remain and that there weren't like struggles uh, happening during that time. It's only yeah. to say that if you look materially at the material base of the economy, if you look at capital, national and international capital, it was a solution for this stagnation of profits for a certain amount of time. And then everything else follows from that. Unless we want to go into like Christopher Lash territory where you're talking about cultural changes, you want to talk right. about psychological changes or even political changes fundamentally something has to be happening underneath that uh, it's related to it of course because neoliberalism was amongst other things a political project but something has to come around in order to to fundamentally change the the capital relation change the way capital is structured all otherwise all that stuff means nothing because you're still in a world of um of crisis uh you're still in a world of a diminished rate of profit you're still in the world that we're seeing right now which is this uh covid recovery as it's called which is even a pale comparison to the recovery of 2008 and like something needs to be done and i'm not sure the answer is particularly out there yeah, that, that may that's you're probably right. I would say that um, um, the COVID recovery can only happen after 
COVID is, you know, everyone's vaccinated, I think. Right. You know, like we can't really have a COVID recovery while people are out of uh, staying home from work on the levels that they are. Um, the, the question about whether or not neoliberalism actually overcame the problems of profitability is like an empirical question that I can't, uh, you know, honestly answer. But I, I would just say that if you look at someone like Michael Roberts, he has a theory of, the, of a long depression, which would say that the rate of profitability is actually stagnating or declining for uh, all those years. And um, but I don't, you know, I, I can't pull the numbers up, but you know, it, it's a very complicated issue and, the, and it's also unfortunately kind of boring unless you're the kind of person that likes to do accounting and, and, and crunch numbers all day. Um, and unless you're willing to spend the time to examine your assumptions as well and make sure you're kind of, have a coherent theory of, of uh, economics and the labor theory of value and all of that. And like the, the truth is that just like in Lash's time and, uh, and before the Marxist left doesn't have a consensus on, uh, on capital. Like there right. are different, are, you know, tendencies and, and sectarian groups and, and positions um, but it's not as though Andrew Kleiman's uh, temporal single system interpretation of Marx is the dominant one. It's just what right. I happen to like. Sure. And it's not uh, 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 like Paul Maddox is the dominant one either. It, it's so. Uh, it's Anwar Shakes. Let's be honest. It's Anwar Shakes. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding, Anna. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, you said that the, these debates are kind of boring and uh you know we're doing a podcast and you do a youtube show and a podcast so we don't want to be boring we want people to you know keep listening and clicking and sharing and sending comments that are angry or you know do right. angry super chats so mm. we want to keep them interested so what's more interesting than the, the kind of uh economic underpinnings of these these arguments or of the the problems of capital society itself is saying like is poking at the orthodoxies or the perceived orthodoxies or being a leftist attacking the left, for Ooh. example, is yeah. a very sexy thing. And I think that uh, although I, 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 uh, I imagine that you're right about uh, Lash being a compelling and worth worthwhile figure to read. I think that why he's so popular today is because he does make this critique of the left that kind of sounds like a more intellectual anti SJW thing. But you argue that uh, despite his anti-elitism and his critique that the left has kind of uh, played into this, the uh, into something that's uh, the creative destruction of the elites, perhaps, um, that he actually sided with culturally conservative elites in his rejection of these progressive elites. And uh, I would be surprised to, uh, to, if this was overlooked by all of uh, Lash's contemporary supporters. Is this, is this something that he states explicitly? I would say it's a... You know, it's a matter of sometimes about a matter of guilt by association. It's sometimes uh, a matter of who champions his work or who who decides to run with it. Um, uh, he, he does not come. He doesn't. He never stops critiquing uh, the cultural conservatives, even in a book like The Revolt of the Elites. He never full on embraces the, the doctrines and the positions of the actual like neocon cultural conservatives of his day. Uh, but he would talk to them. Uh, I think he would speak at some of their conferences and things like that. He um, wouldn't be invited to the White House to talk to Jimmy Carter about it. Yeah, right, which was not quite the same thing, but that was the, around the culture of, of narcissism. And he, he ended up uh, 
being pretty skeptical about Carter and not not a big fan, but he ended up voting for him anyway um, uh, in 1980 because he couldn't stand the thought of Reagan becoming president. Mm. Uh, Sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, mean, I would say that uh, it's easy to – if you only read The Revolt of the Elites and you don't read him deeply, it's easy to see him as like uh, – a a social justice, uh, an anti-social justice warrior of another era, the, an, uh, a member of the IDW before the IDW existed, that, that kind of thing. I think Barry Weiss uh, recently tweeted out a link to his book, oh. Revolt of the Elites. Um, and uh, and I, at one point I was thinking about writing about Christopher Lash and Jordan Peterson in some sort of work together. Uh, and um, because I thought that, if people read Christopher Lash instead of Jordan Peterson, that they might be led back to a more uh, systematic and deeper uh, understanding of the problem of a culture under capitalism. And that where Jordan Peterson tries to shut the door on um, a Marxist analysis or a deep political analysis and just turn everyone back to themselves, that Christopher Lash is trying to lead people to uh, that kind of analysis and, and, uh, so it it to me it's a little frightening that uh, the IDW people would now be embracing Lash, where I saw the connection a couple of years earlier, um, uh, but in a different way. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, everyone is sort of dumbed down and bastardized when they're picked up by the popular culture and the Twitter gangs, uh, uh, because you know everything has to be put into a soundbite, and the the long uh, trajectory and history of Lash's career. Um, is ignored in favor of you know the fact that he hates uh, what is it the PMC the the professor right. professional managerial class just as much as anyone, um, or or that he thinks that the elite rather than the cap, rather than capitalists are the problem or uh, things like that. Right. Um, if I if I understand it too, um, cultural narcissism and the revolt of the elites isn't simply about how um how the progressive left is bad it's also about how the type of society that america has created the type of culture and economy that the new left came out of itself is itself a uh one that's distorting of subjectivities it itself creates the culture of narcissism of which the left is is only one part is that right yeah and the thing to remember about the culture of narcissism is that Lash is using a definition of narcissism that is not the common vernacular kind of uh, uh, understanding or definition. It, it, narcissism, from Freud's perspective, was about having a very weak ego mm-hmm. and having and a, a not feeling enough uh, psychic support to ma- to maintain a solid sense of self. So the narcissist is constantly looking for support outside of himself and. Uh, is unable to kind of integrate uh, his or her experiences into a solid sense of uh, of ego. And so a culture of narcissism is a culture where people aren't able to individuate well, can't, can't uh, set their own course, can't uh, really act in their self-interest in any co- coherent way, um, and one where they have a very weak ego. So it's not the usual kind of understanding is the narcissists are too interested in themselves. The, you know, that's true, but the reason why they're so interested in themselves and their own personal experiences is because they don't have any grounding 
and um, it's not a it's not merely some sort of moral failure of the West or something like that. It has to do with the way in which we're atomized and urbanized and uh, spread up, apart from one another and broken up and made to be mobile and um, and even the proletariat are are kind of taken out of their communities and put into uh, projects where they're mostly anonymous and uh, and so on. Yeah, I think that you know all the communist thinkers I'm interested in are are also interested in atomization. You mentioned uh, James Boggs and Facing Reality wrote about this, and I think still today groups like Endnotes um, are you know interested in this question of of separation. I guess maybe those are too you know esoteric or marginal or perhaps uh, difficult uh, positions for some people because they they imagine that American conservatism is the one is actually dealing with atomization in a, a more robust way. And so you see people who are nominably social Democrats, uh, rightly critical of the progressive left, turning to figures like Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson or new right media outlets like the American conservative, as if they have something to offer from the working class, perhaps by, you know, making uh, American communities great again or something. Mm. So, but do you think this represents like a real emerging political tendency or is this just kind of, uh, lazy contrarianism. Oh, I don't know. I, the, um, I think that when liberal leftists or, or Marxists and socialist leftists, um, become very upset about people publishing in the American conservative or watching and agreeing with Tucker Carlson, uh, that we're kind of making a tactical mistake, but I'm not sure that I, my solution would actually work. But like, I don't think it's wrong to say that you can read the American conservative and learn something. Um, it's just that you have to have developed a, uh, a, a critique of society of your own rather than looking for these journalists to provide you an adequate critique of, of society. Like I like Matt Taibbi, but I don't expect Matt Taibbi to provide me with the, uh, you know, a compass for how to do political uh, action today. Like I, I, you know, so we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking for when we read journalism? And uh, we shouldn't be looking for someone to come along and tell us what the right position is um, uh, right now. It's more like you know, what are what's on the ground? What are people thinking? What are the arguments and then we can sort them? You know. I, I want to I want to talk about the Great Reset in a second. That was another topic uh, from your video. But first, I, I want to say that. Again, in terms of method, in terms of analysis, the the it, it shouldn't be <clears throat> Tucker Carlson is bad because he has these bad, evil ideas that are going to spread to people on the left, and they're going to become chauvinists and nationalists and uh, uh, social conservatives or whatever. the The real interesting thing about Tucker Carlson is that how these real objective conditions that exist, this real alienation, this real atomization, is real enough that. Its expression is is so imminent that even somebody like Tucker Carlson, a Swanson, uh, frozen food fortune uh, demagogue, um, sees these as issues that need to be addressed. And the way that those end up being addressed is through ideology. So we should we should understand that <clears throat> they're both Tucker Carlson and like a, a, 
endnotes, right, are both examining something real. It's just mm-hmm. the question is not even who's the question is who's right, of course, politically, but also like what are the underlying conditions that make this such a salient and important point for people all across the political spectrum to be addressing? Yeah. You know, there's a guy named Mickey Kaus who's on Blogging Heads TV uh, with Robert Wright. They do a, a podcast every week, and I don't remember the name of their podcast. Um, but Mickey Kaus was a Trump supporter in both 2016 and its last election. He came, came out of SDS. He wrote for The New Republic for a while. Maybe he was even the editor of The New Republic for a little while. I, I can't remember. I know Robert Wright was. Um, he considers himself to be uh, left-oriented, despite the fact that now he runs almost exclusively in conservative circles. Um, and his reason for supporting Trump was that he liked Trump's immigration policies because he was cons- because his own personal uh, politics mostly involved a, a desire to overcome inequality in America, hmm. social and economic. And Trump's uh, anti-immigrant stance was what he thought was necessary in order to do something about the inequality in wages and in social standing of America of the American people, um, and like. I don't think that that uh, argument is true just in terms of the facts. Like I think automation um, and, and other economic factors would push against income inequality regardless of the immigration policies you had. Uh, And that immigration is way overblown in terms of its effect on, on, on wages and people standing in the economy. But nonetheless, it's important to like see that um, a certain kind of concern with American inequality can lead to a, a right-wing kind of reactionary position yes. and not to and not to just uh, denounce that, but to explore it. like see what are the underlying assumptions that led to this conclusion? what what is no longer thought to be changeable so that this is the only, option that someone who says they like Marx, I mean, Mickey Kaus says he likes Marx, um, would, you know, in, end up in, in embracing this kind of politics. Um, I'm actually going to interview Mickey Kaus if I can. Uh, I've been working on on doing so. I had an internet outage on the, the day I was supposed to do it um, uh, originally. Uh, but, you know, the other concern for me is, okay, I interview Mickey Kaus, I talk about the, his politics, his Trump and Trumpian politics. I let him explain his position. And do I thereby associate myself and our channel with uh, a rising kind of red scare dominated social democratic nationalist uh, anti-immigrant politics, which might be thought to be forming or, or am I given the space to like try to do an imminent critique of all that stuff? Um, And I think it comes down to what, the viewers take away from it and also how well I do in, in being critical during the interview. Um, but, uh, but I do think that all this kind of, I think this sort of right wing nationalist socialism needs to be critiqued of without from something other than just a moralistic, um, perspective. Um, yeah. And this, and, and what you describe in, in terms of how, 
this potential interview, this platforming, if you will, of this individual, how that will play out. I mean, that's very much tied into these same sort of discussions about uh, woke, anti-woke and cancel culture and everything like that. I mean, I don't want to sound like uh, Glenn Greenwald here, here, although he's right a lot of the time. But uh, it seems like um, these sort of moments of engagement with other ideas uh, are very controversial right now, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I want to jump. Mickey Kaus, one last thought about Mickey Kaus is that Mickey Kaus is quoted at length in The Revolt of the Elites yeah. by Christopher Lash. So, uh, like, he's been around on the scene for a long time. He's in his late 60s now, I think, mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his ideas, which are influential – uh, or at least, you know, aligned with Trump, um, have been uh, in play since Lash's time. And so there is a, like a real reason, like a, a, some concrete reasons why Lash is picked up by guys like Steve Bannon and by people who are flirting with social conservatism today. Um, and so, you know, all that needs to be kind of brought out into the open as well. Uh, well, I think... Part of the reason I, I like the work that you do, even though you do uh, platform things that I disagree with, is because it's better to um, like. Let me let me start over. I, I think a big problem with the anti-SJW and then also the way leftists kind of denounce um, competing political tendencies is they will generalize it uh, based on the worst aspects of it. Um, in a in a sense in a way that like everybody kind of understands that like for example uh, there are these leftists who say they like Tucker Carlson and that's you know moving this creating this tendency towards nationalism and racism and you know uh, that exists and you know I think it appeals to people who know that that's like a bad thing that's happening but unless we're talking specifically about who these people are and what they're saying then it's just kind of this I don't want to say it's a straw man but it's just kind of this ephemeral thing that you're uh you sort of define yourself against um this thing that may or may not exist and you begin to isolate yourself from the reality of this discourse um Mm -hmm. and you may not need to engage in that discourse it to me it seems like it's pretty marginal and like no one really gives a shit about josh hawley you know Mm -hmm. uh like there's a poll recently about uh of like uh how he would do in 2024 and he was polling like below Mitt Romney at like 3% or something. But if you are, if we are going to talk about it, like we are talking about it right now, like we chose to talk about uh, Christopher Lash and the people who like him today, we should try to be faithful to the things that these people are saying. And it's not such a bad idea to like engage them directly if you think it would be a productive argument. So I don't mind you doing that. Um, and I, I might not come to the same conclusion of you, but I, I generally am in, interested in, in the way that you do it. But that does get you into trouble, both, you know, people who might uh, un- unfairly denounce you politically or also, you know, talking about something like the the Great Reset on YouTube, right. which is something that they want to kind of suppress the conspiracy theories associated with it. Right. right. Yeah. And I don't know why I chose to do. Actually, I do know why in practical terms or like what affected me to, to choose the Great Reset. But it was a dumb move to choose to cover that angle, obviously, because it got the video removed. Um, uh, but, you know, right after Trump lost, um, I had a, a, a Trump supporter on the podcast um, to talk to him about his views. because, And this is not somebody who is famous or who I know particularly, but he just found me. 
uh, on Facebook and started messaging me and leaving comments on my wall. And, um, and uh, he told me he was the smartest person in the world. Wow. So, uh, very, you're very fortunate you ran into him. Then. I, I know. I, I was very thrilled to have met the smartest person. It was a little surprising how many dumb things he was saying. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I realized was this guy was not actually completely uh, rabid. He wasn't, he wasn't even like an unethical person. He was just very much caught up in a different perspective. Um, and But somehow or another, he wanted to talk to me, which may be uh, reflects something I'm doing wrong. I don't know. Uh, but he was very much interested in like the great reset. He was sending me information about the great reset and what it was. So part of the reason I made the video was to speak to people like him and say, look, this great reset, uh, is not, uh, some secret conspiracy. It's been around. The idea of a reset has been around as an answer to more radical suggestions as a way to navigate the problems that we're really facing, like uh, like the ecological crisis or the long-term effects of the recession or inequality, just all the, the reset idea is uh, coming out of like Goldman Sachs as a way to do a, a moderate version uh, of the of of, an, of of addressing these problems um, without having to change their actual uh, financial practices or or the foundation of society or, or, or really get even the state involved that much. It's like, we'll, we'll police ourselves. Look, we have this great reset idea and it will, and we're going to get our, uh, we're going to stop thinking about stockholders and start thinking about share, uh, shareholders or like uh, shareholders. And what is it? Shareholders or stakeholders. stakeholders, right? right. Yeah. Shareholders or stakeholders. So we're shareholders who own actual shares in the company. Stakeholders live in the community where the company works or produces things. Right. So, um, uh, it, but it's all empty, mostly empty verbiage. Um, uh, maybe things like carbon offsets or, or that, that kind of stuff. Uh, flirting with the language of reparations without actually doing reparations. Um, it's it's a PR campaign, uh, and coming out of the progressive wing of capitalism, um, but it's not um, any great conspiracy, and it it's not actually what a leftist agenda would look like. Um, that was sort of the the point of one of the points of the video was to say, look, the Great Reset is not a, some nefarious uh, conspiracy hatched by alien uh, globalist pedophile elites or anything like that. Um, Try saying that controversial opinion online, though. Oof. I, I got, <laughs> I, I've gotten into it with the with the Great Reset uh, people, and uh, you see some people I won't name names on like the the left left arguing that there's there's something deeper to it that it really is a grand design, and I think fundamentally um, why I think you are right to bring it up and why I think we should talk about it is it is like this, this new iteration, like, um, what's the thing that the, the Rockefellers, uh, had in the 1970s about the population bomb and how we needed to like start, uh, um, despatializing. There was like this really great conspiracy. Part of the reason why the Rockefellers became this part of the conspiratorial canon is because there was all this talk about uh, this population bomb that was going to lead to like mass starvation on Earth. And these very sort of stayed kind of center, center right, center left uh, 
institutions, our think tanks, started to come up with some proposals for how we would confront this, and they seem very anodyne. But because of the fears, the, the real political fears and tensions of that time, it became part of uh, the globalist agenda that people would right. talk about. And it became, instead of an ad hoc, or not an ad hoc, but at least like a a suggestion, a, a drive on the part of certain sectors of capital who were, as you said, the progressive wing or the, the left wing of capital, which understood that there were fundamental problems facing humanity and that somebody needed to propose something and we needed to move forward through this with some changes. Instead, it got interpreted just as the Great Reset gets interpreted as this nefarious plot by an omni omnipotent, omnipresent uh, cabal of elites that uh, instead of, of course, what it actually is, which is a whole series of tendencies that are already happening in society, like talking about, you know, you won't own anything, you'll just rent things, you know, talking about, uh, you know, drone delivery of your of your packages, this sort of uh, technocratic paternalistic world uh, of like uh, friendly woke capitalism, like. I hate to say it, but the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum people, didn't make that up. These are tendencies that already exist within society and within right. capital right now. And they're saying, let's purposefully harness these forces to try to confront these issues. That's way different from saying, like, the lizard people and the cabal and the pedophiles are, are, are imposing this plan upon all of us. Well, the right. way I actually read it is that they, they're they justifying it, that they're creating a, YouTube, uh, a utopian vision around these things that are already happening yeah. that people don't really like right. they're saying, well, where this is all going is like a better future, a future where capitalism is not as bad as it is now. Cause they know people don't like capitalism. Now a future where, you know, the government can just print and spend money and blah, blah, blah. Like this utopian stuff. It's the same thing as Elon Musk. It's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. You can look at what they're really doing and how their businesses really run. And like uh, how the boring company is a total fraud, a facade and how, their space idea is just, you know, it's just telecom. It's not about, it's not about uh, life on Mars and the moon. It's about uh, controlling the telecommunications on Earth. Um, it's it's about muscling uh, other corporations out for uh, market share. Mm. Um, but there has to be some kind of promise of of a better world through it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it becomes um, so easy for even leftists to think of something like the Great Reset as a conspiracy is because we tend to be political determinists. Like we believe that what's decided by our, the political elites is what comes into being and which leaves out the material basis of society and the, and the problems that arise uh, can, uh, in an unintended way based on uh, how we produce things and relate through the market and all of that. And so when we don't focus on that material basis of society, it's easy to think, oh yeah, the, what we see is what someone has set out to create. Um, on, on the other hand, like I kind of like Elon Musk, even though I know that he's a shit, but well, he's I, cool. We all agree he's cool. <laughs> and attractive. But, he's a handsome man. He's no, 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 no <laughs> I won't go that far. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've uh, been told by uh, many people that uh, if you look at him, you know, just with without rose colored glasses, he's an objectively unattractive person. Um, but um, tell Grimes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what I like about Elon Musk and all those kind of uh, you know Silicon Valley types is that they do dare to have some sort of vision of a yep. future. And so, like on the one hand, um, 
you know, being sold. This, the problem is that they aren't radical enough, that they're not really conspiring for a major change uh, at all. And that's the problem with the Great Reset, too. If it was really a Great Reset, it would be called revolution and we'd be changing the, the foundation of society. And conservatives and right wingers would be right to be you know, opposed to it and, and out, you know, we would have to deal with real ideological conflict. Um, but instead uh, what we have are these sort of pseudo utopians uh, that dominate and, and most of the left spends its time saying, Oh no, that's impossible. Oh no, that's impossible. No, we couldn't, our future is going to be terrible. And, you know, let's all accept the fact that we're falling into the fire pits of hell and, and, you know, let's not delude ourselves. It's, it's a, it's a futurist vision that's being offered in a time when, you know, as you said, there, there doesn't seem to be, the the future seems very bleak and nobody has a plan. And I, in, in um, arguing with these great reset people online, uh, I came to the realization of something that I think I've, I've seen for you know, 15, 20 years or so, or at least since 2008, when I started to read Capital and, and take the critique of political economy seriously, which is that one of the most frightening things to try to get through people's heads, to try to get people to understand, and indeed to try to understand yourself, is that political determinancy, it's actually completely false and that there's like there's nobody in control i think especially for americans this is a very very frightening thing it's not to say that elites don't have power it's not to say that they don't inordinately inordinately benefit from not just the decisions they make but the system itself it's only to say that in the end of the day they too are limited and constrained by the particular material conditions they're constrained by the balance of class forces and ultimately so many of the choices like we're talking about with the great reset are overdetermined in the last instance by you know the 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 imperatives of capital accumulation uh, and political expediency. So, but I, I think that there's because our world, because we live in a West Wing world, and in a sense, the United States has been for a long time a West Wing country, like a very anti-materialist political culture, uh, at least like through the second half of the 20th century. Uh, I, I feel like um, that's one of the more difficult things to get through to people. I think it's fundamentally one of the most important things for people to understand. Yeah, it and it is tricky because like. Back in 2011, 2012, I was unemployed for a while. I had been fired from my Comcast job and um, was looking around. I think it was 2010, 2011, actually. And I was looking around for work, and I went to a, a, a job fair where I was possibly going to be able to get hired to sell the idea of smartphones and Internet connection uh, on your phone. Uh, plans for that to to people by going door to door and leaving leaflets around and things like that. Sure. Um, and I w- I w- sat through a, a film in the in the job fair, and uh, it was all about how many different corporations had combined their uh, powers to create a new network to give people internet on their phones. And um, and I was I walked out. I didn't take the job. I didn't apply to the job for the job because I realized that at the time, what was important to me was the fact that if you are getting the internet on your phone, you no longer have net neutrality. Mm. That what you are getting will be filtered by corporations and apps, and it will be different rates, and it will be a much more controlled experience to get your internet on your phone. Um, and that there was like a conspiracy to take away the freedom that had been developing on online. Um, and so there really was like a, a corporate uh, cabal 
uh, planning to make uh, the phone internet the 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 new internet for everyone and to push down Wi-Fi and and the kind of uh, uh, networks that we had had up to that point. Um, but on the other hand, it was also the just a fact that mobile internet was going to serve economic needs and real world needs for people and that people were about to be very eager to embrace having the internet in their pocket everywhere they went and it was going to make major changes. So those corporations were wise to kind of jump on what was going to be a trend one way or the other, um, I think. But it's hard to say, like, where does the actions of corporate America stopping the, the primary cause of something and where does technological development and the needs of the overall or underlying economy be, you know, take over. Um, and I don't think it's always easy to differentiate the two, the two strands. Well, we talked about earlier uh, about how, how the left should formulate its own positions on things, its own unique vision, instead of just being oppositional to the right or something like that. Right. Um, and it's interesting to think about this in terms of this concept of reset versus revolution. So like reset could be something like a jubilee, you know, no more debt for anybody, uh, UBI now, you know, but yeah. still with all of the increased mediation of technology, algorithmic living and all the atomization that comes with that. Right. Whereas yeah. revolution would be, I think, something closer to the. Uh, the the bleak, uh, scary future that you cautioned against earlier, because it would mean probably we have to get rid of all that stuff and we have to find a new way of living that is not dependent on somebody making food and someone else delivering it to us and all of the logistics that go into that. It probably means something more like we make we grow and make our food together uh, like it doesn't have to be that. But if we are talking about like a radical break from the past uh, not just a reset where there's like a new uh, party in charge or something, but a radical break, a revolution. It will be something, I think, a little like uh, uglier and scarier than just, uh, you know, new, the new bosses in town. Yeah. And, and this you start asking very different questions when you start thinking about really changing the foundation of society. For instance, do we would a revolution entail setting up um, local production and requiring everyone to participate in food production or not? What could there be a mediating structure that would be socialist um, that would allow us to hold on to some of the things that are very uh, good about capitalist production in the way that basically uh, we're interdependent and we and we don't only create for our own use, um, but uh, managed to pool our global labor and to produce masses amounts of, of material uh, commodities. Do, so do what what would really be required to create a socialist society just on the level of productive work um, and how it and how that is distributed the results of that are distributed. Those are those start to become the questions. And you know, there are longstanding debates about that, too, and uh, there are, are objections to various proposals that you can look to, and, and I think they're all worth um, exploring. What I, uh, back back when I was critiquing Jordan Peterson a lot in the intellectual dark web, uh, uh, I one of the things I wanted to get at was the way you, uh, the, this group uh, advocates for being intellectually open also 
ends up being a way to close off questions about radical changes. So exactly. rather than debating how we can create a new society, we're, we're debating, uh, you know, whether or not uh, black people are lazy and whether we should be able to discuss that. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it, I'm not someone who thinks that you should never be able to question orthodoxies around race uh, or that people who do should be thrown out of the forum. But I definitely think that having that conversation over and over again gets us absolutely nowhere and is uh, you know, designed to be uh, alienating to, to, to people, uh, you know, of all kinds of races and, 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 and make it much more difficult for us to create a better society. And this is my last point. This is my problem with this woke, anti-woke, two sides of the same coin thing, is that for for all of the problems with wokeness and, and the associations we might have with it, they, these tend to be discussions about, you know, everything that's wrong with the world and like trying to overcome them in some way. And obviously a lot of those are liberal ways uh, that's going to be inevitable. But the idea that having those discussions uh, talk like, for example, critiquing the bourgeois family, uh, critiquing gender, um, is producing an opposition that will crush it. So there should be instead this uh, this constant appeal to the conservatism that is inherent in the working class, which I do agree exists. That that is a real thing. Then uh, like that, every all our arguments should be uh, strategic in that way. And I don't think they should be. You know, I I agree that you know the racist should be able to air their racist opinions and we, we need to be able to attack them and we should air our, our, our radical critiques of, uh, of bourgeois society. And of course they'll attack us. And that's just kind of what needs to happen. We shouldn't shy away from the idea that we do have radically different ideas of humanity and the way humanity ought to live. Yeah. And, and I, you know, what I what I guess I hope for is like if we're having an argument about or a conversation about the bourgeois family, is that within the left that there would be um, uh, enough room to be complicated and nuanced about th- that issue. Like I happen to think that the family provides uh, working class people and all sorts of people with real material things that they need and with connect human connection that is vitally important it, the problem is the bourgeois family is also an atomized unit um coming out of a patriarchal tradition uh which and is also dissolving it's really not uh, th- that powerful of an institution anymore either so on and also, terms, that the, also that the solution isn't to simply bring back the bourgeois family qua the bourgeois family Right. You can't. Right. Yeah. You can't say like conservatives will say things like, you know, uh, what we need are more bourgeois f- f- fam- family values. You know, the working class and, and, and the elites both need to embrace those things. It's like, sure, you can you can do that and you can buy a Hallmark card on Valentine's Day. That doesn't mean that you have a good relationship with anybody. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean. Obviously, we can't just embrace these old values, but we should try as we envision a a better future to hold on to the things that those that the bourgeois family was supposed to help us have. And some of the things that are good about the bourgeois family, as opposed to I mean, what came before was like arranged marriages and traditional families of uh, uh, that were not created out of love, but out of economic need. And, you know, so the bourgeois family is progressive. 
in that sense, just like bourgeois society overall is progressive. It just has its limits. And, and um, so, uh, and I, you know, I, 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 uh, the other thing I should mention is like, you know, I have my own personal reasons for taking my, the stance I do on the bourgeois family. <laughs> so I should probably having, uh, having a bourgeois family has influenced right. your ideas on the bourgeois family. Yeah. This has all been a great discussion. Let's uh, let's go to the Antifada Parrot Room, the uh, the bonus content, and we'll talk some more about this with Doug Lane. Why is it called the Parrot Room? That's uh, that's what they call it on uh, on there. We can ask them why, and I'm not even sure why. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is it a is it a parrot head thing? Is it uh... <laughs> what's his face, Jimmy Buffett? Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, zero books is uh, is in the pocket of Big Buffett or something. I don't know. <laughs> I could, I could see that. I could see that, too. I could see Doug being a closet parrot head. And that will be the topic of the bonus. I really miss the old days before the cosigns. I really miss them cold days before the road signs. I really miss when I ain't know it's where I was supposed to head. And I was pressed because my shorty gave me cold signs. I was writing poems by the dog and study hall. And she was mad because I never want to show her off. And every time she took a bra off, my dick would get soft. I thought I had a problem. Kept my head inside a pillow screaming. I For not calling enough through the way But couldn't tell you if I kept it in my head to the cat I asked her why this world of echoing hate She said don't let those soon know you start dictating your fate I think the hardest part of love could be rebuilding the break Conditions to omit the mental our foundation will shake It's no debate, the road to peace is filled with snakes You gotta keep your cool And recognize the wolves that wanna try and leave you wool Don't let them treat you like a window, you know you would chill This world is cruel and not as simple as they teach in schools Sometimes you gotta step away and check your own intentions And analyze if what they do can compromise your vision If people trust you, they won't need to question your decisions You never needed them if they make you another villain Pressure. 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 
friend's bike and then Fred was going to get it back but then he didn't 